Let me encourage you to turn in uh, your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 11. The uh, sermon text is not what Mick had planned to preach, but a uh, text from Romans 11. I'll be reading verses 33 to 36. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, hear now the word of the living God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Father, what a privilege it is to come into your house of worship, open the scriptures freely, and read them together. We pray that that privilege will never be taken away from us. We ask now that you bless Pastor Jonathan, as he delivers his message to us, and bless us, please, and and open our ears and our hearts that we may fully take in all that that he is presenting to us tonight. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. What does it mean to live a God-centered life? Well, as those that are committed to Reformed theology, we tend to say a lot of things and value being God-centered. Well, R.C. Sproul, in his foreword to Back to the Basics, said this, On the one hand, Reformed theology has little, if anything, in its doctrine of God that differs from broader Christianity. On the other hand, the most distinctive dimension of Reformed theology is its doctrine of God. What distinguishes the Reformed doctrine of God is its relentless application to all the other doctrines. You might say Reformed theology is very concerned with logical consistency. We can't say God is sovereign and then deny His sovereignty in the plan of salvation or in His works of providence. Theology itself is God-centered. But dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's in our theology does not equal a mature congregation. The Pharisees were the most theologically literate in their day, and yet they were not driven by a God-centered motivation. They were driven by a self-centered motivation. They wanted more than anything for every person to know they were right. And if a church has the primary motivation of being right, then you will completely miss the good news of Jesus Christ. However, if a church is primarily concerned with what it means to live a God-centered life, then you will want to see and you will see that God is at the very center of the gospel. He's at the very center of the scriptures. He's at the very center of everything. So we're going to see three key elements in our text this night. 
about, be, about living a God-centered life. First, we're going to learn about a God-centered plan. Second, a God-centered process. And lastly, a God-centered purpose. In 1543, Nicholas Copernicus published his treatise on revolutions of the heavenly spheres, which presented a heliocentric or a sun-centered model of our solar system. Up to that point, the Ptolemaic model or a earth-centered solar system had been the reigning model. Now, this has become a powerful image in my mind. If you remember studying this in school, you might remember how different the orbits are if you have the earth in the center versus having the sun in the center of the solar system. And so it has become more of a metaphor for me thinking about what it is to have a self-centered or a God-centered life. So as you think about living a self-centered or me-centered life, if you place earth or yourself in the center, what you have is a very chaotic orbit of all the important things in your life. But when you turn away from that lie and commit to a God-centered or a sun-centered, S-O-N, then you will see all of the beauty of the order that God can bring when he is in the center of our lives. Well, it is essentially an illustration that is helpful, and historically this has been known as the Copernican Revolution. But I have to tell you that the unfortunate part is that its effect was exactly opposite of how I used that image as an illustration. The Copernican Revolution was a significant start to devaluing the authority of the scriptures, and of the church. You see, church leaders at that time rejected Copernicus because they misunderstood the scriptures, believing that they taught an earth-centered solar system. And so Copernicus, therefore, must be wrong. Non-Christian scientists have used this all throughout the last 500 years, to try to claim science trumps Scripture. But misunderstanding Scripture and then pounding your fist that we have it right, we stand with God, is not the way to persuade people to trust God or His Word. This is why rooting everything we do in a right understanding of God's Word is so critical. And I don't just want to proof text to you how to live a God-centered life. I, I want us to see that the very verses that I read is the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit bringing to conclusion all of the indicatives of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans to then transition into all of the imperatives of chapters 12 to 16. The verse I will focus on is the very center or fulcrum between the first half and second half of Paul's greatest theological work. After expounding the greatest truths man has ever heard in the history of the universe, he erupts in doxology. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? 
Paul cannot contain himself as he has been meditating on these truths, writing this epistle. Who can plumb the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God? He can't help but to use superlatives, right? Unsearchable, inscrutable, meaning God cannot be scrutinized. Then he contrasted God's wisdom with the foolish thought that we would actually, that God would actually owe us something. Actually sounds kind of convicting. I mean, how many times in our prayers, right, are we saying, God, what are you doing? Well, if that's you, don't fret. You're not alone. The psalmist said in uh, Psalm 10, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You see, God is not fearful or opposed to us asking questions. We're just not supposed to question God. You see, when you ask questions, you're looking for information. When you question God, you're looking to justify your disobedience. That is the difference. Paul is saying we should conclude there must be something lacking in me, not in God himself. He also declares how ludicrous it sounds that God owes us something in the sense that uh, you know, we would give him a gift and then he has to repay us with something. So when we think about this one verse, this is what I really want to focus on in verse 36. And we're going to learn three key things in verse 36 alone and then we'll be done. First, we learn about a God-centered plan. Look again at verse 36. It says, for from him. Okay, now I call these three prepositions pregnant prepositions because they're so full of meaning. And we could do an entire sermon series just on the word from, knowing that everything is from him. We didn't make ourselves. There was a time in the history of the world that we did not exist. My mom recalled a question that I asked her when I was just a little boy. I was trying to figure out where I was before I was made. She says, well, you didn't exist. But where was I? You know, so, you know, the ontological questions of a four-year-old. And she would try to give an answer, and I would say, but where was I? I just had to know where I was. And, you know, she said, you were in mommy. And I guess I was satisfied with that. But it's not just me. There was a time when nothing existed except God alone. It's kind of hard to grasp when you think about it. So do you realize that the three persons of the Godhead are completely content existing apart from creation? I mean... It's been happening from eternity past, and that's a really long time, right? God did not create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he needed us. He created us because he wanted to demonstrate his glorious character to all of creation, even multiplying it because we're made in his image. And so when we think about creation, it is, Creation itself is God-centered. He spoke it into existence from nothing. 
He designed every molecule to exist in exactly the way that it does and to move exactly where it goes. The Lord made it all, so he owns it all, and so he has authority over it all. And we can praise him because he is also perfectly good. Can you just imagine having an all-powerful God who was not good and he just loved to torment us like a child with his toys? That is not what our God does. Our God had a perfect plan from the beginning, as I said, to demonstrate his perfect character to all of creation, his justice and his infinite grace. God revealed himself in the scriptures and in creation so that we would not try to make God in our own image. It says in Romans chapter 1, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Creation itself has God's fingerprints all over it. All things are from Him. Creation itself is God-centered. Now, when you reflect on your own origin and you realize you did not make yourself, that God made you, that He rightfully rules over every aspect of your life and that you are accountable to Him, how does that help you have perspective on your current circumstances. Well, since we're sinners by nature, and it doesn't really sound like good news at all, actually, because it basically sounds like we are really, really bad and God is really, really mad. Well, the gospel story doesn't end there, thankfully. God has revealed things to us about his grace that can be overwhelming. And we learn, secondly, God had a God-centered process. First was a God-centered plan. Second, a God-centered process. It says, for from him and through him. Our God did not only ordain the ends, but he ordained the perfect means to accomplish every one of his ends. Now, it doesn't mean we always understand it, and it certainly doesn't mean he gets our permission to make sure it's okay in the way that he's going to work out all things for our good and his glory. He doesn't need our permission. Scripture says, the Father used the Son to create all things. It says in Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Jesus is the Word, and God the Father spoke the universe into existence. How many of you loved to work on projects with your dad when you were growing up? It's usually something we all enjoy. Even if you grew up without a dad, I'm guessing you especially longed for that. Now, in the beauty of the only perfect father-son relationship, I want you to imagine the father and the son working out the plan of salvation as the most glorious father-son project that has ever been conceived. Nothing is more majestic. Nothing is more worthy of praise. Nothing 
reveals the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father better. God made the universe through the Son and for the Son in love. And the Son made the universe from the Father and for the glory of the Father by the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures allow us a sneak peek into the intimacy of that father-son relationship. The process the father chose was to unite his people to his son. The son then lived the perfect life that we failed to live. He then died the death that we deserve upon the cross because of our sin. And then he rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, where it says in Ephesians, we are seated with him in heavenly places, united to Christ by faith. The Father chose to bring us into the very middle of that perfect relationship between the Father and the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the gospel good news. Good. It's great. It's awesome. It's amazing news that we have been given. We don't even understand how good we really have it. And Paul knew that. And so that's why he offered a prayer for us in Ephesians chapter 3, which is the parallel center or fulcrum in the book of Ephesians. All the indicatives, one to three, all the imperatives, four to six. It says in Ephesians 3, at the very end of that chapter, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his inner being, sorry, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The process of God's plan reveals perfectly the infinite justice and infinite grace of our God. Of course we need prayer to be able to understand it with our finite minds. Every sermon you ever hear should have the goal of holding up Christ and then trying to turn like a diamond so that you can see yet another gleam of the facet of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But that's not the only thing that preachers are called to do. We also are called to bring to you the comparison of every other offer that you've ever been given in this world and show you how insufficient the power of this world is, how insufficient the pleasures of this world is, how insufficient the praise that comes from the world really is when you compare it to having a relationship with God the Father united between the Father and the Son for all 
eternity. There's nothing that can compare with such a glorious purpose. Now, we have trouble. I mean, we know in our minds that that's true. We just have trouble living the God-centered life, though we might understand what it is. And so we will now end where we started, with a God-centered purpose. It says at the end of verse 36, And to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We cover the past. We cover the present. And now we have the eternal future. We exist to fulfill God's purposes and only God's purposes. At whatever point the purposes in our lives contradict or conflict with his purposes, we are on the path to destruction. You see, God's ways lead to life and joy. And so opposing that naturally means death and sorrow. So how are we to deal with the fact that our default setting is to put ourselves at the center of everything. For those who are extroverted, you might be tempted to try to gain the attention of others when you're in a gathering. For those who are introverted, you may not want the attention at all, but did you realize that the obsession to not have the attention still makes it all about you? Huh. Don't matter who you are. All of us are guilty. All of us have the disease of self-centeredness. So we need to be reminded of the Lord's glory in creation, and we have been. We need to be reminded of the Lord's glory in redemption, and we have been. And so we finish trying to understand the glory of God in consummation, in the end of all things. All things are to him. So as those committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith, you already have the answer in your memory, possibly, to the shorter catechism. So if you know the answer, you can answer it with me. What is the chief end or purpose of man? And you say with me, to Now, if for some reason you didn't automatically know the answer to that question, I would highly encourage picking up a copy of the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith. This is the shorter catechism that we quoted. It's so helpful to have accurate summaries of our faith. Great reading. I encourage you to pick one up. But that question that we just said is actually about man's purpose. What if I changed it and said, what is the chief end of God? You probably already know. It's the same answer. God's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. Yes, the three persons of the Trinity, perfectly content in that love relationship from eternity past to eternity future. And you're saying, but, I mean, it kind of sounds selfish. Well, let's think about it. Is God worthy of that focus? If God made somebody else more important than himself, then God would be guilty of idolatry because he is the only one that's worthy of it. And so he, in that worthiness, puts the focus in that particular place. And yet, how did God choose to demonstrate his love? You know another very famous verse, well, this is a verse, not a, a question, but 
you know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, God did not make us more important than Christ. That's not possible. But in the only way that he could demonstrate the fullness of his glory, he sacrificed what was most valuable to him for you. Now, Jesus went willingly. It's not like he was dragged to the cross by the Father. He said, I will go because he loves the Father and he's obedient to the Father and he loves his bride. That's you. And Jesus is committed to sanctifying his church and then presenting her to himself at the consummation in her perfection by his grace. Now, you all don't really know me, so you don't know that I was a fine arts major in college. I did sculpture, painting, pottery, and uh, I just started back on the potter's wheel after it sat dormant for five years. And uh, there is, uh, having not done any pottery for a very long time, uh, there is a um, technique that every potter has to do. The very first step, right, is called centering, right? So you have a a lump of clay, you plop it in the middle of of the wheel, and then the wheel is spinning, but you still have to put pressure on that ball of clay and make sure that it's perfectly centered, before you put in the well and then you start lifting up the walls because if it's not perfectly centered, you get a wobble. And then either the pot flies off or it's just completely ruined. So I felt like a freshman a few weeks ago because I couldn't even center after so long. I'll get back to it. But we need to begin every day, metaphorically, centering ourselves on Jesus. Now the beautiful thing is, He's the potter, we're the clay, and God is really good at centering. It says in Isaiah 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And so as we reflect on living a God-centered life, God wants every member and every person in your entire life To have an irresistible passion for the glory of God as we submit to His ways above our ways. Ask the Lord to make Him central in everything that you think. In every priority that you have. In the deepest desires of your heart. Be that influence in your family with your friends, even with your neighbors and co-workers, when you will stop and say, let's pray about that, and then do it. Remind us that it all does revolve around God. And so as we submit to a God-centered life, our thoughts will then lead to actions. Our actions will help us to develop God-centered habits, which will lead to God-centered traditions, which will allow us to develop a God-centered culture in our hearts, in our families, in your church, in your community, and to the ends of the earth. To Him alone be all the glory. Amen. Father, as we consider the fact that you are not only good, 
but that you would place us in the most intimate place that has ever existed in eternity to make us one with Jesus, united in love with you by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. Lord, center every aspect of our lives on that reality because there's nothing that can threaten it. There's nothing that can change it. And it should be our greatest motivation for relating to every person in our lives out of a position of strength because we are fully accepted, fully loved, and we can share that love in word and in deed so that all the world would know that you love sinners that you patiently walk with us in a relationship on a daily basis so that we would celebrate you above all things because you're worthy of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.